Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in. Turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 9, Episode 16. I'm your host, Otis Jari, and in this episode, I'll be performing four tales to terrify you, courtesy of author John Gibson, about maladjusted mothers, demonic deliveries, belligerent banjoists, and backwoods bewitchings. You're listening to the Standard Edition of tonight's program which contains the first two spine-tingling stories. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and our other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail, so... Lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. <laughs> Mothers tend to be a friendly lot, always looking out for their children, even when kids go looking for trouble. However, what constitutes a child's well-being can vary wildly, depending on the point of view. Here we have a fellow whose mother's idea of caring for him might just go a little too far. Without further ado, I present to you my mother's burnt offering. 
Mom always loved Jesus more than she loved me. She told me so herself over and over again when I was growing up. Every morning she'd say to me, Jimmy, you're my only child and I love you more than I love myself. But I love Jesus even more. Then she would read the 22nd chapter of Genesis to me out loud. That's the part where God tests Abraham, the great patriarch of the faith, by commanding him to sacrifice his son Isaac as a burnt offering to the Lord. Isaac was bound to the altar, the wood for the fire was piled up beneath him, and Abraham's shaking hand was bringing the killing knife down when finally the Lord spoke from the heavens and ordered Abraham to stay his hand. Having passed the test by being willing to kill his own son for God, Abraham was given a ram to sacrifice instead. Then God promised him future glory as a reward for his faith. And after that cheery Bible story was done, Mom would pour me a glass of grape juice, warn me to be careful and not spill it, and then read more from the Bible while we ate breakfast. After breakfast, she would pray with me while we waited for the school bus. She always prayed that I would love Jesus like she did so that I could grow up to be a mighty man for the Lord. Do you love Jesus? Mom woke me up with this question on my eighth birthday. Yes, Mommy. I answered through my fog of sleep. Do you really love Jesus? She persisted. Do you love him more than me? Do you accept him as your personal Lord and Savior? By that point, I was awake enough to open my eyes. Mom had the disheveled look she got after staying up all night praying and reading scripture. She was silhouetted in the darkness of our living room over the couch I slept on, her hair frayed out around her head like a flaming halo. Yes, Mommy, I told her. Mom looked hard at me in the dim light, then she shook her head. I don't believe you, she said. You're old enough now to be accountable to the Lord God. You will be punished in eternity for your sins if you don't accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, but you've got to truly accept him. Tears were streaming down her face in hot, glistening streaks as she continued. You can't just tell me that you love Jesus to make me happy. You have to really love Jesus. Love him like I do so that you can be baptized and saved from the eternal fires of hell. Do you understand me, Jimmy? I nodded my head. Good, she said as she wiped her eyes with the ratty t-shirt she wore to bed. I'll ask you again tomorrow. I'll ask you again every day until you're ready to love Jesus. Now, go get ready for our Bible time. Yes, Mommy, I answered. Then I went to the bathroom and brushed my teeth real slow. I always took as long as I could with dental hygiene just to put off having to listen to the story of Isaac being bound up and offered on an altar to my mother's Lord. I've never known who my father was. I never asked Mom about him. The closest I ever came to bringing him up happened when I was in the third grade. All the other kids' fathers were invited to come in to talk about their jobs, but I didn't have a father to come in, or an uncle, or a grandfather, or anyone other than Mom. I didn't ask Mom about my father or her parents. I just told her what was happening at school. I probably hoped that she would tell me something about my family beyond her but instead 
She just told me not to let any of those men lead me away from Jesus. Then she added a lot of stories about harlots and whores to our morning Bible time. I guess religion's done a lot of good for a lot of people. At least that's what I hear tell. I'm sure that those missionaries thought that baptizing an unwed, disowned mother and giving her a Bible would help both the mother and the child. I'm sure those missionaries believed their good works would bear good fruit. But, as Mom pointed out over time and time again, the good works of religion will never get us into heaven. Us sinners are justified by faith alone. Without faith in Jesus, we all face eternal fire and torment. The Bible teaches us that faith has healed the sick, raised the dead, and saved the sinners. Mom knew that religion couldn't do anything without faith, so we never went to church. Mom wasn't concerned with mere religion. She only cared about faith. We moved around town a lot when I was a kid. Just in my third grade year, we went from a ramshackled house to a roach-infested duplex to an apartment over a mechanic's garage. Everywhere we lived, Mom would use a magic marker to write, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, all over the walls. I asked Mom why she did that, and she told me that we are commanded to inscribe the words of God on our doorposts and our gates, but that since we didn't have either doorposts or gates, walls would have to do. Mom had faith in her Bible, she really did, but by the time I was in junior high, she stopped trusting her own ability to read it and understand what her God wanted of her. It started when she was studying the epistles, trying to really understand what they meant for her. As a person of faith, she read the words and truly believed them. She believed them even though they were telling her that as a woman, she was a weaker vessel. I found her crying over the passages in 1 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul told the believers in Corinth that a woman with questions about the faith had to ask her husband to explain it to her. Mom was working part-time as a checkout girl at the grocery store during those years, and money was so tight that the only way we had enough food to eat was because her manager let her take home expired baked goods, dented cans, and old eggs. A typical dinner for us back then was dry toast, a can of beans and hard-boiled eggs. Yet, somehow, Mom found the money to get her first smartphone. She could barely make rent on our dilapidated duplex three blocks from the grocery store, but she needed a phone to plunge into the world of online dating. She signed up for some Christian dating service she'd heard advertised on her favorite radio station, the one with the preachers going on all the time about the power of faith. I didn't know much about online dating back then, but now I know that most people with an online dating account are looking for love, or at least affection and fun. Not mom. She was looking for a male head to answer her questions about God and the Bible. I snuck her new phone out of her purse when she was in the shower one night, praying loudly that the water would be her new baptism. I opened her phone and read the dating profile she'd written. I'm a Christian woman who tries to serve the Lord Jesus. His word has convicted me, and I need a man for headship over me and my son. 
He was conceived in sin, but I've repented very much. I've tried to bring the boy to Jesus, but he needs a Christian man to lead him. I hope that my shame doesn't scare you off. 1 Corinthians 14.35 Her profile picture was a blurry photo of the cover of her Bible. You probably won't be surprised to learn that Mom didn't get any gentleman callers from her dating app. I guess even uber-Christian men who take dating advice from the radio evangelists aren't that desperate. When I started high school, Mom was still waking me up every morning by asking me if I loved Jesus. I always answered yes, and she always refused to believe me. She would cry for my damned soul, and then she would read to me from the Bible as I tried to choke down the grape juice she was still certain I loved. Mom's readings began to skip around the Bible a lot, with passages plucked from context and read to me in a staccato rhythm over breakfast. Mom was a real fan of the book of Proverbs in those years. Her favorites were, Wisdom will save you also from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words, and the mouths of an adulterous woman is a deep pit, man who is under the Lord's wrath falls into it. She always admonished me with another proverb as I was leaving for school. Don't lust for her beauty. Don't let her coy glances seduce you. I was the only kid in my grade who wasn't allowed to take sex ed classes. I guess mom figured that proverbs had given me everything I needed to know. By the time I graduated from high school, Mom had given up on finding a man to be her head, since she knew that a mere woman like her could never fully understand God's wrath. She started using her old smartphone to take online Bible classes, taught by male preachers, naturally. She never stuck with one for long, though, and hopped from one virtual ministry to another. After graduation, I worked as close to full-time as I could at the convenience store, it took several months, but I was able to save up enough to move out of the tiny duplex Mom had been able to keep since I was in junior high. It was the closest thing to a home that I'd ever had, but it was a relief to get a couple of blocks away from Mom and have a small space of my own in the decrepit apartment building. Mom still called and texted me at weird hours asking if I loved Jesus, and if I would say yes, then she would tell me, that I had to mean it to be saved. She started taking walks that just so happened to bring her by my new place. She wouldn't knock on the door or anything. She would just walk around the small apartment building a few times, then head back toward her place. Even with the constant calls and texts and the frequent surveillance, it was the most freedom I'd ever known. I wasn't waking up to a disheveled woman with flyaway hair asking me if I loved Jesus and then refusing to take my yes for an answer. I didn't have to listen to macabre Bible stories while drinking disgusting dark purple juice every morning. I was paying for my own place and had my own phone, and that phone was eye-opening in ways Mom wouldn't have approved of had she known about the app I was swiping on. After a year of living alone, Mom started to get desperate in her search for spiritual guidance. I know it's probably hard for you to believe, but I still visited her two or three times a week. She was the only family I had, and I just couldn't leave her all alone. On one visit, she told me she had to find a teacher she could trust. 
She needed a wise man to lead her because the Bible warns not to lean on your own wisdom. I told her that I hoped she found what she was looking for soon. After praying and fasting for a week, seeking a man anointed by God to teach her, Mom visited me at work to share the news that her fast was over because the Lord had revealed the teachers she was supposed to follow. I couldn't talk to her much because of the long line of customers buying smokes and booze, but I was glad that she was going to start eating again. I wanted to treat her, so after I clocked out that night, I got us a pizza from the convenience store and took it over to her. We were eating pizza as Mom explained that the Lord had revealed to her that she should study under Pastor Aiden Foley. I was shoving pizza into my mouth like a hungry 20-year-old guy, even though I'd been eating pretty regular since I'd moved out and away from Mom's spontaneous fasting. Despite having not eaten for seven days, Mom was eating dainty and slow. Uh, Who's Aiden Foley? I asked through my full mouth. Mom swallowed her own small bite before answering. A pastor Foley, she said. Founded Lightbringer Ministries. His teachings focus on the redemption of sinners and bringing us to salvation. I didn't know what to say to that. Even with all the years of Mom reading her Bible at me, I'd never figured out how to respond to her projection of cosmic dread in my direction. All I could think of to say to her was, if it makes you happy, I'm glad for you, Mom. My happiness doesn't matter, she answered. What matters is pleasing the Lord. I shrugged. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. If you think following this Pastor Aiden Foley will make God happy with you, and if making God happy will make you happy, then I guess I want you to do what this man says. Mom smiled at me then. It was the first true smile I can remember her ever giving me in all my years on earth with her. She handed me a tract with a drawing of a blazing star encompassing a cross in the front. On the back of the tract, an intense man stared out from a black-and-white photo. Jimmy, she said to me, I really want you to read this. It will change your life. Uh, Okay, Mom, I answered. I skimmed the track as I walked home. The front was dominated by a blazing star printed in a garish yellow ink. The star almost subsumed the small cross silhouetted before its brilliant light. Around the logo were the words, Jesus sacrificed for you. What will you sacrifice to him? Inside the text made it clear that Pastor Aidan Foley was big into sacrificing what you valued most to the Lord. 
only. Naturally, those sacrifices needed to be routed through Lightbringer Ministries to be effective. I couldn't see what my mom found appealing about the man, but since she had nothing to sacrifice, it didn't seem like she was at much risk from him. I tossed the track into the recycling bin when I got home. Mom started cooking for me again, and not just canned goods and past-date eggs we used to live in. By then, she was head checker at the grocery store, so while she wasn't making good money, she didn't have to rely on charity anymore, either. Between having improved pay and still getting a store discount, Mom took to making dinners that were fancy, at least by our prior standards. I'd come by, and she'd ask me if I loved Jesus and pray for me, and then we would eat together. I was still only coming by two or three nights a week, which made Mom sad because she wanted to see more of me. Of course, those two or three nights a week were plenty to annoy my girlfriend, the first and only woman I've ever known in a biblical way. I made a lane on a dating app Mom wouldn't have approved of. She lived a couple of towns over, in the county seat where the courthouse and hospital are. She's older than me by a couple of years. She's been to college. She has an office job, and she even has a car. Maybe it's weird for a girl to drive on a date, but I didn't mind. She'd drive to town to pick me up, and then we'd go to the movies and bars and restaurants and other places Mom would never allow and couldn't afford. There wasn't any way to avoid Mom's duplex leaving my apartment, so I'd scrunch down in the seat as we drove by to keep her from seeing me riding around with a woman I knew Mom would assume to be a harlot of biblical proportions. Our first date had been the night before Mom got convicted to follow Pastor Aidan Foley and his Lightbringer Ministries. It was immediately clear that things were serious between Elaine and me. Since my work schedule was so unpredictable, she wound up spending a lot of time at my apartment right away. But as much as she loved me, Elaine was more than a little angry over being my dirty little secret. There's no reason for us to be in the closet, she said to me one Friday night at my place. It's bad enough to shove gay people in the closet, but I at least understand how messed up stuff like that happens. We're a super boring straight couple. We're both adults. This sneaking around so that your mom doesn't notice has got to end. I promised her that I'd find a way to tell my mom about her by our first anniversary. I swore that if I couldn't find a way for mom to accept Elaine, then I'd cut mom out of my life and focus on the woman I loved. I wasn't sure how I was going to come clean to Mom, much less convince her to accept Elaine into my life. I didn't doubt that Pastor Aidan Foley and the Lightbringer Ministries had more than confirmed Mom's long-standing conviction that a woman who regularly spent the night at her boyfriend's apartment was exactly the kind of dangerous harlot Mom needed Jesus to deliver me from. I hated hurting Elaine. But Mom was the only family I had, and I couldn't stand the thought of losing her either. I didn't believe in Mom's God anymore, and I don't think that I ever really did, but I still felt guilty for wishing that Mom would just die before the year was up. That would spare me the pain and anguish of telling her that I had a girlfriend. When Mom invited me over for what her text called a special dinner to celebrate a year of serving the Lord God and Pastor Aidan Foley, Elaine was looking over my shoulder as I read the message. It's almost been a year, babe, 
she said to me. I know, sweetie. I'll tell her. Just as soon as I figure out how. Elaine looked at me with her piercing blue eyes. You're going to figure out how, and you're going to tell her, she said. Or you're going to tell her to piss off for good. You promised it would just be a year. If you don't come clean to your mom by the end of her special dinner for the Skyman, she loves so much more than you, you and I are through. She was sobbing as she said it, though, and I started the ball, too. I hugged Elaine and held her close. I hoped rather than prayed that somehow this would work out and that I'd be able to have both my mother and my girlfriend in my life. At that moment, I wished that I had the faith of my mom, faith that everything would work out according to some divine plan. Do you love Jesus, Jimmy? Mom greeted me at the door with her usual question. I was fidgety. My palms were sweating and my mind was on Elaine. I left her pacing in my apartment waiting for me to get home from Mom's. She could have stayed at her own place, but she told me that she wanted to be there for me in the aftermath of whatever happened with Mom. I hoped there wouldn't be an aftermath, but knowing Mom, I figured there would be. I looked at Mom standing there inside of her front door. She looked even frailer than usual, and I suspected that she'd been fasting again. Her hair was gray now, but still long and unrestrained. She was wearing a simple white linen dress I'd never seen before. Yes, Mom, I answered. I love Jesus. She continued our ritual. Then do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Do you accept him as your personal Savior? Yes, Mom, I do. There was a tear in her eye when she looked up at me and said, Then you should be baptized for the remission of sin. That wasn't what I expected her to say, and I think the surprise showed on my face. Mom ignored my bewilderment. Come inside, Jimmy. I'll draw the bathtub full, and we'll use it to baptize you before dinner. Um, okay, I answered. I didn't really want or need to be baptized, but I figured that would make Mom happy. Once I was saved in her eyes, maybe she could take my news a little bit better. She led me down the hallway, past the single bathroom, and into what used to be my bedroom. My old single bed was still shoved up against the wall, shared with the vacant unit next door, but everything else about the room had changed. To begin with, the closet had doors. They were just cheap folding doors made out of fake wood, but they were doors just the same. Over the years, our landlord had always refused to put doors on our bedroom closets, saying that we would just break them anyway. Mom must have put those doors up herself, but I didn't know how or why. Mom had also painted the full wood paneling on the walls with dingy white paint and scrawled more Bible verses all over the cleanish slate. It was Mom's old favorite verse, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But there were others, too. She opened the new folding doors in the closet just enough to slide her hand inside. She pulled out a linen garment, like the dress she was wearing, but longer. She handed it to me. Put this robe on for the baptizing while I go draw the bath, she told me. I nodded. The wall behind her shouted, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Mom left and closed the bedroom door behind her. I stripped and donned the white linen. 
It was scratchy and new on my skin. I folded my clothes and put them on the bare mattress of my former bed. Shall not commit adultery. I heard the water running in the bathroom next door. His mom filled the tub. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your mind. I wondered what mom was hiding in the closet. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. I opened the folding doors and peeked inside. The fire will test the quality of each person's work. There, where I used to pile my clothes and toss my shoes, was an altar made from a second-hand sofa table. The table bore a small cross and a large framed picture. A promiscuous woman is as dangerous as falling into a narrow well. She hides and waits like a robber, eager to make more men unfaithful. The picture was a black-and-white photo of Pastor Aidan Foley, staring out with a fiery passion. Large font printed over the picture read, Do you love Jesus enough to give him your all? And I shook my head and stepped away from my former closet. I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. On the closet wall behind the makeshift altar was an enormous poster of the Lightbringer Ministries logo. When the logo was blown up to that size, it was as if a blazing star was swallowing the tiny cross. This is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong. I heard the water in the bathroom turn off. Bad company ruins good morals. I slammed the closet door closed with a gasp and tried to compose myself before Mom opened the door to the bedroom. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his weed into the barn and burning the chaff with unquenchable fire. The door opened. Mom stood just beyond the threshold. For some reason, her dress was already soaked from filling the tub. It's time, Jimmy, she said. I walked into the bathroom. The baptizing wasn't easy because I'm a good foot taller than the tub was long. Mom wound up holding my head underwater while my feet stuck up on either side of the faucet. She used a plastic cup to pour water over my exposed legs while the rest of me was submerged. She was meticulous in her work, deluging my toes, my ankles, my shins, all while her other hand on my brow held my face beneath the surface. I started to squirm, not wanting to disappoint my mother, but desperate for air. Finally, she grasped the hair of my head and drug me, gasping up into the air. Mom insisted that we eat right after the baptizing, even though we were still dripping in our arraignments. Dinner was simple, just fish and dinner rolls. She'd bought them both frozen, and they'd apparently been baking while I was getting baptized. After I sat down at the kitchen table, Mom opened her refrigerator and poured me a tall glass of grape juice. I always think of you when I see this in the store, she told me. You used to really love grape juice when you were a little boy. 
I took a sip of the deep purple juice and gagged a little on its cloying sweetness. It was so pure and innocent then. She continued as she sat down across from me, and we began to eat the fish and the bread. I've been praying for you to accept Jesus ever since then. You know that, don't you, Jimmy? She looked like she was about to cry. I know that you've prayed for me, Mom. I know that you wanted me to be baptized more than you wanted anything else in the world. I took a bite of the fish and was surprised by its saltiness. It's not just that I wanted you to be baptized, Jimmy. Her eyes were glistening with tears and glowing with zeal. I wanted you to be saved. I wanted your sins to be forgiven. It's because I love you, Jimmy. I took another drink of the juice to wash down the salty fish. Thanks, Mom. I I know you love me. Then, before she could say anything back to me, I added, but not as much as you love Jesus, and not as much as I love Jesus either. Mom smiled at me, almost like she was trying to convince herself to be happy. She topped off my glass of grape juice. My mind was getting fuzzy somehow, but I remembered that there was something I needed to do, something I needed to say. Mom, there's something I need to tell you. She shushed me like I was a baby. Not now, Jimmy. Wait until after dinner. Right now you're pure and clean from your baptism. Then my chin drooped to my chest, and it took an act of will to snap my head back up. Mom... I. Then my forehead hit the juice glass, shattering it into a thousand shards. The pain woke me up for a second, and I remembered the blood from my forehead mingling with the dark purple juice. The mixture ran across the table and coated my face. It dripped down onto the tattered vinyl floor of the kitchen. It stained the clean, wet linen I wore. Then my eyes closed and the world went dark. Mommy... If Jesus loves me, why would he burn us for being naughty? Mommy, Mommy, please, it's too tight, it hurts, it hurts. Please, Mommy, please. I heard the splash of liquid being poured out around me, and perhaps it was the righteous vengeance of an angry God. There was the taste of blood and grapes on my tongue. I smelled gasoline on still air. Eyes, I had eyes. He who has eyes, let him see, I told myself. Then I raised my heavy lids. I was in the closet atop the altar. Around me were rags of mom's old clothing, all stinking of gasoline. Above me I saw the blazing star of Lightbringer Ministries. Beside my head, the grim photo of Pastor Aidan Foley asked if I loved Jesus enough to give my all. Even though my head throbbed and blood still dribbled from my forehead, I knew that I shouldn't remain on my mother's altar. I began to swing my feet down, but there were ropes around me, binding me in place. I managed to turn my head away from the wall in the picture of Pastor Aidan Foley, and when I did, I saw Mom sitting on the bare bed I used to sleep in. She was stroking a pack of matches like she used to stroke my hair when she read me bedtime stories from the Old Testament. She smiled at me when my head turned. Welcome to salvation, Jimmy. We'll be with Jesus soon. Then she struck a match. I don't remember if I screamed, but I do remember Mom smiling as the flames shot up the walls and licked at me upon the altar. I remember her praying for deliverance from our sins 
as her gown caught fire and raged around her. I remembered the smell of my own hair burning and the pain of my sizzling flesh, but I don't remember if I screamed. Elaine found the inferno. When I'd been gone too long for her comfort, she texted me. When I didn't respond to her text, she turned her pacing in my apartment into a nervous walk toward my mom's duplex. When she saw the flames and smelled the smoke, she called 911 before she crashed through the door. It would be poetic to tell you that my brave Elaine saved me from my mother's burning altar, but that'd be a lie. The walls of flames were too much for her to penetrate, and the smoke turned the tiny duplex into a confusing maze. Elaine gave herself first-degree burns trying to save me, but the firefighters are the ones who drugged me out. They came in, a torrent of water and sparks and black smoke that I still taste and smell, even here in the ICU. I don't know how much of me remains beneath these bandages. Elaine sits with me for as many hours as the hospital will let her. I think that she was here even through the two weeks I was drugged into a stupor to keep me from feeling the worst of the pain. All I remember from those days of haze is the anguish of a blue-eyed angel. Elaine tells me it was probably just the drugs. Now there are stretches of time where I'm conscious enough to slur short conversations with Elaine and answer the doctor's questions. The price of my wakefulness is that I feel the fire take my flesh again until finally my next dose of painkillers returns me to a cloudy state that exists beyond pain, but still far from salvation. They've wrapped me in a shroud from head to toe, as if for burial. The doctors tell me that I'll be in these bandages for many more weeks. Perhaps I will yet be able to cast them off and be raised. But I just don't know if I have that kind of faith. I hope you enjoyed My Mother's Burnt Offerings by author John Gibson, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed that first tale and would love to read more from tonight's very talented feature author, you can help support them by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash Gibson. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash G-I-B-S-O-N. You may follow his writings on Reddit under the moniker of Ozark Writer, view his various musings on his WordPress blog under MissouriOzarker.com, or see what he has on Twitter at M-O underscore Ozarker. If you do decide to stop by the profile, please leave John a kind word and let him know you heard about him here on this show and that Otis Jiry sent you. It would mean a lot to me and to John. Thanks again for your support of this program and of tonight's featured author. It's always a shame when people take things just a little too far. I always say be cautious of anybody bearing pamphlets. My mail carrier, for one, knows very well to just leave them by the mailbox just because of what happened the last time. But that was a little bit of a heavy appetizer. Perhaps you'd prefer your next meal a little lighter, fluffier. Then maybe it's best of you to cook it yourself. 
After all, the, all the best meals are homemade, aren't they? And then again, it all has to do with where you buy your ingredients. In our second tale from John Gibson, we'll find that some of those meal order kits are more trouble than they're worth. As you might find, the less you pay in cash, the more of an asking price there may be in the fine print. Without further ado, I present to you that new subscription meal box really sucked. My culinary misadventures into inadvertently assisting in the summoning what I can only assume is a demon began innocently enough. It all started just over a year ago with one of those mealbox subscriptions. Learning to cook for myself after Mama died wasn't hard, but all the rest of the process of preparing my own food was horrible. It's so much harder than she made it look. How in the world am I supposed to figure out what kind of bolognese sauce to make when the internet has at least 517 variations of it? And how am I going to find the right pasta shape to go with that bolognese sauce at my rinky-dink little hillbilly grocery store? Even getting close to the right answer took every spare brain circle I had. Mental energy, my boss, would have preferred me to devote to things like not running my forklift through the wall of the distribution center. My boss got over it, but I'm not sure that I'll ever get over having to use farfalet for dinner that night. Look, I know lots of you reading this already have a mailbox subscription and don't see why I couldn't just get one I like, like you have. The thing is, I would have signed up for one of those services in a heartbeat except for one thing. Money. As much as I wanted to try out some of those mailbox services, I couldn't afford the fees without giving up something else. Something like my internet connection and car. Not being able to afford a mailbox subscription while also not being able to lay my hands on the ingredients I needed to make most of the foods I wanted to eat was a peculiar intersection of first world problems and hillbilly struggles, but God damn it, they were my problems. They're what I was thinking about when I got into the trouble. Mama always told me that I had a bad habit of focusing on the small problem in front of me instead of the big troubles all around me, which I guess is true. But since she passed on, I haven't had anyone to help me shift my attention. That's how, after two years of cooking on my own, and searching in vain for a subscription meal box I could afford, I almost, but not quite, had given up on ever finding a service that would free me from the drudgery of meal planning and grocery shopping. Then came Seven Seals Meals. Their info packet arrived in my mailbox like an answer to a prayer, all wrapped up in a big red envelope with a shiny golden logo on it, with matching print reading... A mealbox subscription you can afford. I eagerly read the details while I roasted my potatoes. According to the brochure, my town's location, size, and demographics made it the ideal location for Seven Seals Meals to run a free trial of their mealbox service. A note from their founder and CEO, a pasty-looking dude with straggly hair and dark clothing, explained that he needed data 
about what people from middle America, people like me, thought of his avant-garde recipes. If I acted now on this opportunity, I could get a year of meal boxes for free. The only catch was that I had to give them an online review of each and every meal they sent me. That seemed easy enough. I also had to promise to attend something they called a convocation in town at the end of the year of meal boxes. But since that was a whole year away and wouldn't even require me to leave town, it didn't seem like a big deal at the time. I looked for a catch as I read and reread the information while eating my uninspired dinner, a pork chop and potatoes in desperate need of tarragon I didn't have. I couldn't find a catch in the offer of a year of free meals, even though it sure did seem too good to be true. After dinner, I fired up my laptop and searched for any reviews or complaints about Seven Seals Meals Online, but I came up empty. There didn't seem to be anything on the internet about them other than their website. I figured that was to be expected for a startup. I didn't have anything to lose, so I created an account on the website to begin my free trial with the username HillChef417, which I thought was funny. I went to bed wondering when my first mailbox would arrive. I didn't have to wonder long. Somehow, when I got home from work the next day, there was a red box sitting outside my front door, the flaps held shut by an ornate sticker with the Seven Seals Mail logo printed in golden ink. The logo featured entwined branches, or maybe they were antlers, embossed in golden ink that glistened and shimmered in the setting sun. For the life of me, I couldn't figure out how they got the damn box to me so fast. Maybe, I thought, they had set up a shipping center in town for the trial. Yeah, that seemed to make sense. I took the box inside, more interested in finding out what was contained than how it got to me so damn fast. I started opening the box as soon as I was inside the house and heading for the kitchen. I nearly spilled the dry rice on me, which would have been bad, but finally I was able to yank out the inner box. There, in separate compartments of a plastic tray, sat a lamb chop, new potatoes, and asparagus. When I picked up the tray, there were small packets of herbs and a neatly folded sheet of paper with preparation instructions underneath a picture of the smiling Seven Seas Meals CEO. I got right to work. Forty-five minutes later, I was eating the best dinner I'd ever cooked. That evening, I locked back into the Seven Seals Meals website and gave my first box-top marks. After the first few delicious weeks, the boxes from Seven Seals Meals began to get weird, and I started to get really, really tired of lamb. I don't know if the company had a sheep farm or something, but every single dinner they sent me contained some sort of lamb. I had lamb chops, lamb kebabs, rack of lamb. How could they afford to send me an entire rack of lamb on a Wednesday night? Lamb sausage, curried lamb, lamb meatloaf, lamb with mint, lamb shepherd's pie, lamb sliders, roast lamb, braised lamb, grilled lamb, lamb cheesesteaks. Who knew that was a thing? and about 50 other versions of lamb. The non-lamb meal boxes contents were usually tasty vegetables and grains. 
Everything was seasoned with flavors that were exotic to my hillbilly palate. There was always a generous amount of garlic, onion, or leek, along with herbs ranging from the unexpected to the disgusting. Every time I choked on the nasty flavors, I reminded myself that this was, after all, avant-garde cuisine and that it would take time for my palate to adjust. Over the months, my palate adjusted as best it could. Mint isn't something I was used to cooking with, but once I got over the sense of eating toothpaste, it was okay paired with my daily lamb. Spices like dill and mustard were common enough, even if I didn't much care for those flavors. Time was new to me, and thankfully, non-offensive even to my uncivilized taste buds. Parsley was something I knew as a garnish, but with Seven Seals meals, it came in enormous bundles and was added to dishes in shocking amounts. Cumin and coriander aren't common in our recipes around here, but they found their way even into my local hick grocery store and weren't all that off-putting for me. A couple of boxes contained what had to be about $50 worth of saffron, a spice I'd heard but never dreamed of cooking with. Then there were things like sorrel, endives, chicory, and watercress, all of which were okay in small amounts, but as I noted in my nightly review of the evening's dinner, were usually used in amounts that overwhelmed whatever lamb dish I was making with their bitterness. The way the recipes were prepared got weirder and weirder over time, too, with a bizarre focus on the number seven. There were seven lamb-stuffed raviolis, and they had to be boiled for seven minutes. The link of lamb sausage had to be cut into seven pieces before it was fried. The lamb ragu sauce was supposed to be stirred every seven minutes, and each time I was supposed to stir it seven times in a clockwise direction. The recipe notes from the CEO always emphasized that these techniques were vital to unlocking the potency of the ingredients, but I had my doubts. At the end of the year, as it approached, I was, on the one hand, still enjoying not having to think about dinner on my way home from work. On the other hand, I was beginning to look forward to cooking anything that wasn't lamb with bizarre spices and esoteric preparation instructions for dinner. I was also getting very tired of typing up a review of the day's mailbox every night. After my initial enthusiasm, I'd taken to being brutally honest in my evaluations. The most bizarre meals got zero stars, and comments like, this tasted more like I was embalming the lamb than seasoning it, or, why can't you guys just do a bacon sandwich for a change? With one week to go, Seven Seals Mills sent me a summons to their convocation at the city park. I didn't like being summoned to anything, and as I read the details, I liked how the convocation started at midnight even less. However, the letter went into great detail to explain that my one-year free trial was conditional on my participation in the convocation, which would enable their CEO to personally thank me and learn more about my culinary adventures. The letter also explained that if I did not attend the convocation, I would owe them $7,849.35 for the year's worth of strange meals I'd already eaten. There was no way that I could pay them that kind of money. 
I was just going to have to go to the convocation thing and tell the CEO that he needed to vary the proteins and use a slightly less avant-garde flavor profile. The last week of meals was the wildest of them all. They all contained huge chunks of lamb, large bundles of bitter herbs, and the application of a lot of heat. Fortunately, I had a grill on my back porch. Otherwise, I would have burned my crummy rental house down, charring lamb on the outside while leaving it raw and bloody on the interior. I struggled to choke those meals down, and I even began to almost look forward to going to the grocery store to get something normal to eat. The final box was waiting for me after work just like always, but it was noticeably larger than usual. When I broke the Seven Seals Meals sticker and opened it up, I found an inner box encased in clear plastic shrink film. Over and over, the clear plastic bore the company logo of intertwined antlers and the words in a stern typeface, Do not, under any circumstance, remove this seal before 11 p.m. At precisely 11 p.m., you must open the box, carefully follow the instructions inside, and bring the resulting dish to the convocation. My stomach grumbled. It looked like dinner was going to be considerably later than usual. I hadn't been doing much in the way of grocery shopping, so all I had in the house was some stale granola. I ate two bowls and waited for eleven to come. By the time I was allowed to open that final box, I was both famished and entirely out of patience for the weird recipe bullcrap. To find the strength to carry on, I had to remind myself that I couldn't afford to pay for the year's worth of meals. I knew that after this one last convocation of what was absolutely certain to be lamb, I'd be able to eat something more normal again. The shrink film was stubborn. I didn't want to rip it open easily when I tried to pierce it with my fingernails, so I had to get a knife to slice through the tough material. When I was done, my best kitchen knife was covered with a sticky goo. Inside the box was the typical plastic tray atop smoking dry ice. Within the tray was the expected lamb chop of unexpectedly enormous size, and at least it looked like a good one. There was also a large bottle of olive oil, a packet of some sort of sticky powder, a bundle of fresh thyme, a packet of what I immediately recognized as ground coriander. It had featured prominently in most of my dinners, over the past year, and a six-inch-long sprig of a plant I didn't recognize with fresh leaves and pinkish-purply flowers still attached. There was a tag tied to the spring by a fine thread of what seemed to be silk, and the label identified it as hyssop. The sticky powder was labeled myrrh, a substance I knew about from the Bible, but had never heard of anyone eating I could tell that this was going to be the worst recipe yet. I took a deep breath to steady my nerves and got started. I found the instructions beneath the usual picture of the Seven Seals Meals CEO and began to read. Add myrrh, coriander, and thyme to olive oil in a large bowl. Now that seemed easy enough. I glugged the oil into my largest glass bowl and then dumped the spices in. Using hyssop sprig... Stir oil and spices seven rotations in a clockwise direction 
followed by seven rotations in a counterclockwise direction. Allow the mixture to rest for seven minutes. Okay, that was bizarre, but it was simple. Meanwhile, place lamb chop on a rack. Thoroughly salt both sides and, and the edges of the chop. Well, that was normal, at least. Immediately after the seven minutes have elapsed, use hyssop sprig to baste the lamb chop with oil and spice mixture. Why couldn't I just use a silicone brush? Of all the strange flavor combinations and bizarre techniques, using a small branch from what seemed to be some sort of a flowering shrub as a basting brush took the cake. Speaking of cake, why were there no side dishes in my box? The thyme and hyssop were the only vaguely vegetative matter in the box. Was I supposed to just eat the lamb chop all by itself? This was not a balanced meal. Then it occurred to me that the instructions hadn't told me to preheat my oven's broiler, light my grill, or put a skillet on the burner. If I was going to be at the park by midnight for that convocation idiocy, that didn't leave me much time to cook the chop. I flipped the instruction sheet over in hopes of finding some cooking information. Do not cook the lamb chop. It'll be charred over an open flame as an offering to the one who comes. That final instruction raised more questions than it answered. Then it dawned on me. We were going to have a cookout. I looked at the clock. I was relieved to see that it was time to leave for the park if I was going to get there by midnight. I was ready to get the year-end over with, and even more than that, I was ravenous for a proper dinner. I decided that the one who comes was probably just Seven Seas Meals lingo for the other trial members I assumed were in town and who were going to join me and the CEO for a weird potluck at midnight in the city park. I was bringing nearly four pounds of oddly seasoned lamb, and someone else was probably bringing one of those bizarre olive mashes the meal kits were so high on. It wasn't going to be what I would call a tasty midnight cookout, but it would be a hell of a lot better than just eating raw lamb encrusted with myrrh applied by hyssop. I tossed my lamb chop on a plate, then wrapped the entire thing in some plastic wrap. The myrrh and the oil made a gritty, gluey mess that was far from appetizing, but I was hungry enough not to care too much. I washed my hands because I take food safety seriously, then I took my lone lamb chop on a plate to the park as fast as I could. I careened into the city park, ignoring the sign at the entrance, saying that the park hours ended at sundown. No doubt Seven Seals Meals had a special permit or something. There were only two cars in the lot. Both of them looked a lot like my junker, and neither looked like something a CEO would drive. They were parked by the start of the paved walking trail that winds through the woods on the ridge overlooking the lake, which is a pretty stroll during the day when I'm not full-on hungry. The summons I'd received didn't say where in the park the convocation was going to be, but I knew there was a pavilion along the walking trail, and that seemed like a likely location. I parked haphazardly a couple dozen feet away from the other cars, and sure enough, as I pulled in, my headlights caught a sign with the fancy Seven Seals Meals logo and an arrow pointing down the trail. I grabbed my raw lamb out of the passenger seat. It 
was time to go cook my dinner. As I got out of my car, a young woman about my age came staggering along the path and out of the trees. She stumbled to one of the cars, climbed behind the wheel, and backed out of her parking spot with fits and starts. Then she careened out of the parking lot, narrowly missing my dilapidated jalopy before hopping the curb on her way out. I shrugged and muttered something about people drinking in the park as I started down the path with my lamp chop. I didn't have to go too far to find the lousiest cookout ever. As I rounded the thick trees and bushes to approach the pavilion, I saw an enormous bonfire that was burning right on the concrete path. A peculiar scent, reminiscent of the strange herbs Seven Seals meals were so fond of using to season everything, wafted to me on the smoke. That was odd, I thought. Open fires were prohibited in the park. A single figure stood silhouetted between me and the fire. It stood on two legs like a human, but it had enormous antlers growing out of its head. As I drew nearer, I saw that it was at least twelve feet tall before you even got to the antlers. Then I realized that the gigantic horned figure wasn't a perfect shadow. There was a faint glow of the bonfire coming through the silhouette, as if whoever or whatever loomed there was made of dark glass. The whatever it was stood more or less still, but it was twitching and straining like it was struggling against something heavy but unseen that was holding it back. As I drew near and looked more closely, I could see that the heavy muscles and taut sinews of its bare chest were straining with exertion. About four feet from the thing, I stopped so suddenly I nearly dropped my lamp chop. What in the world was going on? The summons hadn't said anything about the convocation being a costume party. I had a weird, terrified tingle begin to work up and down my spine like in that dream where I'm a kid again and it's the day I forgot to get dressed before going to school. I had the nagging sensation that I'd somehow missed something and that as a result of me missing the forest for the trees, I was about to have something horrible happen to me. As I pondered my situation, a voice on the other side of the fire called out to me. Hey, buddy! You better bring that lamb over here so that we can get this over with. The voice was male and ordinary, and it most definitely didn't come from the semi-translucent antler-top giant between me and the fire, silently struggling against some invisible resistance. I... Uh, I'm not so sure about this, I stammered. I heard heavy footsteps crash around the bonfire, then a bare-chested man I recognized as the CEO of Seven Seals Mills bounded out of the underbrush at me. He was pudgy and pasty underneath, a helmet made from the skull of an enormous buck. While his prosthetic antlers were dwarfed by the rack of the enormous monster, struggling in silence before me, it was still impressive. Part of me thought of how much venison that buck had contained and hoped that all that meat hadn't gone to waste. As I contemplated cooking venison, I realized that antler hat had a gun, that it was pointed at me and that he was screaming. The final seal, he yelled while jabbing his pistol at me. I blinked at him. I'm sorry, I said to him. I missed that. Can you run through it again? 
The eyes beneath the deer skull looked at me with contempt. Then the CEO gestured with his gun toward the antlered giant struggling against unseen forces and began again. The one who comes. As soon as the pistol wasn't pointed at me, I took off running into the woods. I heard a scream followed by a gunshot behind me. Beside me, a crackling noise and smoke came from a pin oak tree that suddenly had a hole in it about the size of a high-caliber bullet. I ran toward the lake more because it was downhill than because of any conscious decision. And by ran, I mean that I crashed through thick underbrush, stumbled over rocks hidden beneath years and years of fallen leaves, and slid down the steeper parts of the hillside. From the sound of things, my pursuer wasn't faring much better than me, only he had a gun that he shot in my general direction at regular intervals, why I, for some reason I didn't understand then and still don't, was still carrying a lamb chop lubed up with olive oil and encrusted in a skanky tree resin. I beat Antler Hat to the lake by a decent margin, which gave me a few seconds to contemplate how messed up my situation was. I knew that I didn't have many options, uh, so I scurried up one of the small streams that feed into the lake. It wasn't very wet, and its channel wasn't very deep, but its banks were high enough to give me a little bit of cover as I started to creep back uphill to the path, the bonfire, the thing struggling against I don't know what, and my car in the parking lot. The only way for me to escape was it to make it back to my car, so I'd have to be sneaky. Below me, I could hear the antler hat bellowing in fury and taking pot shots across the lake. I discovered that it was a lot easier to walk uphill in the stream bed than it had been to go downhill through the underbrush. There were no trees and fewer other plants growing in the little branch. Uh, so, while my feet were soaked from the water trickling toward the lake, I was able to move pretty fast. I did, however, nearly wet myself when something brushed past my leg in a placid pool. I looked down and saw a snake-shaped shadow in the water, and that didn't make me feel any better. I finally made it to the ridgeline and the concrete walking trail, by which point my stream had petered out. I considered trying to break back to my car through the woods, but I was worried that Antler Hat would catch me if I snuck on the lake side of the path and feared that I'd get lost out in the wilderness area if I tried to sneak through on the other side of the trail. I decided that cautious speed back down the path was my best bet. I looked in both directions and saw no one. I listened for my pursuer and heard nothing crashing up the hillside. I took a deep breath and started along the path toward my car at a brisk pace, the stupid lamb chop still in my hand, because once I realized I was still carrying it, I'd become afraid to leave it any place where Antler Hat might find it and know that he could pick up my trail from there. By the time I got to the bonfire, it had burned down a lot, but it was still the size of a large campfire. On the other side of the flames, the translucent, shirtless giant with antlers, continued to struggle against, well, whatever it was he was struggling against. Even in the flickering firelight, I could see that he was sweating profusely now, and that his back was red with exertion. I figured I'd have to leave the trail to quickly skirt the fire in Mr. Sweaty Prongs, and when I paused to consider which side to take, Antler Hat hurtled out of the brush alongside the path and tackled me. Before I could even try to put up a fight, 
The lamb chop I'd been carrying all this time flew from my hands and landed with a crash and a sizzle in the fire. Antler Hat's eyes grew wide as the god-awful stench of burning lamb and myrrh filled the night air. He popped off of me and ran straight through the fire to kneel before sweaty prongs. As the horrible stench of my lamb chop grew, the antlered apparition grew even larger and somehow more substantial. Then the creature lurched forward as if a tether holding it back had been snapped, and I realized that I could no longer see through its body. Antler Hat pressed his forehead down onto the ground and kind of squeaked out, Welcome, my lord. The now very real, very large, very substantial, very angry creature towered over its supplicant and snarled with the voice of a thousand hornets. Mortal, you have kept me in torment on the doorway of the seventh seal for an eternity. Adler Hat was gibbering as I was edging off the path. Uh, I'm, I'm so, so sorry, my, my, my lord. My assistant delayed. I care not for your excuses. The creature buzzed. As your punishment for subjecting me to such torment, I shall render your body and roast it for my first meal in this plain. As soon as I'd crept into the shelter of the woods, I broke into a run. I skidded downhill as fast as I could until I splashed right into the lake. When I hit the lake, I kept on going, swimming faster than I ever dreamed I could. Atop the hill, I heard whales and a terrible ripping. I'm not a good swimmer, but I tried to stay underneath the surface of the water as much as I could. Every time I came up from beneath the surface to gasp for air, there was a smell of burning flesh and blood in the breeze. It didn't smell very tasty. I hope you enjoyed that new subscription mailbox, Really Sucked, by author John Gibson, as performed by yours truly. If you one last time, that tonight's featured author can be found by visiting our website, just visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash Gibson. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash G-I-B-S-O-N. When he's not writing about the Ozarks with a spooky twist, he's writing about the Ozarks with a not-so-spooky twist. Either way, surely, you'll find something a little off the beaten path. As a reminder... If you decide to give any of this talented author's stories a read, please consider leaving him a quality review and a kind word or a thoughtful public comment and an upvote. And be sure to let them know you heard about them on this program and that Otis Jiry sent you. It means more to me than you can imagine, and I'm pretty sure John would much appreciate it as well. Thanks again for your support of this show and of tonight's featured author. Now, before we go, I'd also like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you've enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcast and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium 
extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring Twice the Terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Gyrie channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Gyrie. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep. If you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, The Otis Jiry Channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, 
You'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.